everybody. This is Project Herpetoculture Podcast, episode 46. I'm your host, Roy Arthur Blodgett, joined by the very handsome and charismatic Philip Leitz, as always. And um, I'm very excited to introduce our guest. But before I do, I'm going to go over our housekeeping. And first, I want to give a shout out to Dylan and the Animals at Home Network for hosting our show. Go. I also want to give a shout out to Charlie, who edits our audio and keeps us on the tracks here. Um, thanks to Charlie. Also, want to give a shout out to our sponsors. We have Custom Reptile Habitats. They are makers of very high quality PVC reptile enclosures. And um, we have an affiliate link for them posted in our bio. If you make a purchase to that link, we'll receive a small commission at no additional cost to you. And that helps us keep producing the show. We also have Cold-Blooded Caffeine and they're roasters of quality coffees from all over the world. And um, something cool about them is that for each bag of coffee purchased, they donate a small percentage to conservation and coffee growing regions. So um, if you're a coffee person, check them out and you can use our uh, code Project Herp for 10% off your order. And lastly, we have Redline Shipping. For all your reptile shipping needs, check them out for your labels and supplies. And um, yeah, if you're interested in supporting the show in any way, um, but don't want to go through the sponsors, that's great. We also have a Patreon. And we're also, um, we just welcome any feedback, suggestions, critique, any of that stuff. Hit us up on social media. We're on Instagram and Facebook. You can find us there. And um, we always welcome that. Actually, not critiquing any of that. Yeah. Destructive criticism. <laughs> I'm just, uh, I'm just being a smart. You can ass. find Phil's private Instagram at Arids Only. Yeah, dude, you can send all that critique my way. Critique. You <laughs> <laughs> oh, can handle it. He's tough. Um, but yeah, Phil, you want to introduce our guest today? Yeah, please. Yeah, absolutely. So our guest today is Mariah Healy of Reptifiles. Uh, Mariah, thank you so much for coming to talk with us on the show. It's a pleasure. I'm so excited. Yeah, me too. Uh, I know Roy, uh, Roy and I both were really psyched when you said you could make some time for us today. So we really, really appreciate it. Um, so for uh, those of us who may, you know, I'm sure most of our, anybody listening to the show will probably know uh, of you, of your site, of your social media pages. Um, but can you give us a little bit of an idea of how, like, you know, a bit of your your herpetoculture origin story, like how you got started in having an interest in uh, reptiles and amphibians and how that kind of led you to where you are today? Yeah, for sure. So uh, it's a pretty common story with a lot of us, right, is that this starts when we're really small. And I was obsessed with animals from a very young age, um, like catching lizards at the backyard, keeping them in a little critter keeper, uh, frogs did a had my stint with frogs for a while. I had like a tank of like essentially pond scum. <laughs> yeah. I was growing various things collected from like a local golf pond or something. Um, fish I've, I've gone through it all really. Um, and, but my main passion for a long time was actually, um, it was split between horses and reptiles. Uh, I really liked having pet lizards on the side. I started with anoles. Um, 
Initially, I wanted a long-tailed grass lizard, actually, but Petco did not have one in stock at the moment when I went with my allowance to go buy my my pet lizard. So I settled on an anole. His name was Jumper, and uh, that didn't end well, I will be very honest, but it was a start. Uh, then was another anole named Prince. And uh, funny story with Prince, one time I was trying to hold him, and bear in mind, I was like eight. <laughs> um and, you know, naturally he decides to bite my finger and I freak out. And so I'm like, ah, get him, get him, get him. <laughs> he just goes sailing and he lands in a ball cap that was hanging on the, on the wall on the other side of the room. And so he just like peeks up over and like, what just happened? <laughs> um, and let's see from there. Uh, there's always something going on. I think my next reptile after that was a red-eared slider, actually. I think, uh, and even before I had my own lizards, we had our family turtles. Um, so very common, especially, you know, this is the early nineties, early mid nineties. Um, we had our little like quarter sized red-eared sliders that we grew, uh, in our like 20 gallon tank in the sunroom. Um, and, uh, there were a few of them. The one that lived the longest, his name was Kamikaze. (laughs) <laughs> because he liked to, um, we'd put him on the table for us kids to admire and while he crawled around, but he kept trying to dive off the table. So there you have it, Kamikaze. Mm-hmm. Um, I think he ended up, when we moved, he ended up with a friend um, who was actually highly influential in my life. She was my pediatrician, but she was also a good family friend. And she had this personal zoo that we loved going over to her house to play with her boys. And she just, she had a sandfish named Wink the Skink. And uh, she had a, a few other very interesting animals, including an African lungfish named Louie. And uh, I just loved going over there because it was like going to the zoo. And so, hey, let's go find Wink. And so she'd take a pencil and prod around for him. So she took on uh, Kamikaze when we moved. And uh, I think he ended up in an outdoor pond. But in the winter, uh, they thought, okay, we'll put him in with the lungfish. The lungfish has a big tank. Should be fine. The lungfish is huge. Yes, lungfish are big fish. (laughs) Red-eared sliders have big appetites. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh no it's a lungfish so whoops but wow. um yeah we're our families are still in touch and so it was kind of funny um in a recent christmas letter we reached out to her name's karen like hey you're never going to believe this but uh, mariah who was always begging to see your animals is now working with reptiles and so that was kind of a wild uh experience for her yeah to hear about it um but yeah, so I was into horses for a really long time. Uh, that was, I was the like stereotypical crazy horse girl in middle school. <laughs> <laughs> um, that was my life for a while. And so I just, I I did the whole shebang, collecting the model horses, reading all the magazines, um, <laughs> begging to go to the barn on the weekend so I could help muck out stalls in the hopes that maybe I could brush a horse and maybe even like get a five minute ride on one. <laughs> uh, and that was my life for a long time. Um, and interestingly, uh, I've noticed that a lot of reptile people, particularly women who get into reptiles, also have um not every single one but a surprising proportion of them have some kind of connection to horses i don't know what it is but i think something that 
I was really interested in when um, that started with the horses was horse husbandry. And you don't really think of husbandry in terms of horses, but it's like agricultural animal husbandry. And um, I read a lot of books about how to care for them. And that became something I was passionate about. And so I was always sketching out, you know, ideal layouts for equestrian facilities, dietary schedules, best way to groom, like all of that, taking care of the animal was something that I was very interested in. And that started to leak into other areas of my life, like uh, my beta fish. I had a stint with trying to breed betas that didn't go well. I had a stint with trying to breed guppies that went too well. And I... uh, (laughs) And it just, yeah, if you know, you know. <laughs> right. Um, and I I tried to teach other kids about caring for animals. And so I think I, at one point I started like a, a club about, I think it was the beta breeding club or whatever, where we like would get out books and try to learn about betas and their natural history and how to like get them to make babies and i think we even like got a little bit into genetics i was the only one who was really into it the others were like hey uh when can we actually like do interesting things (laughs) but so that was me i was the weird nerdy little kid with way too much of an interest in um in the natural world and um Fast forward a while, you know, things kind of simmered down, uh, late high school, early college. And then, uh, I got married and, um, eventually I just was mentioning in passing how much I'd love to have a pet bearded dragon. And my husband said, Hey, me too. Like we used to have bearded dragons when I was growing up and I really loved them. So yeah, let's get a bearded dragon. And that's kind of where, where things really started. Um, because I was an adult, I had my own place, my own resources. And so I really just dove in to the internet and it was kind of nice because the last time I did a lot of internet-based animal husbandry research of any kind was back in the earlier days of the internet when it was a lot more poorly organized and the best resource you could find was an apps.org, right? Which... I mean, for a while, that really was the best resource. It was fantastic. And it was a big inspiration for me too. Um, I, I would not be where I am today without Melissa Kaplan's work. Right. Um, so we wanted to get a bearded dragon. We ended up with two. We thought we were okay because we, we wanted to go above and beyond. We heard that 40 gallons was recommended for bearded dragons. Um, we found a 90 gallon and we're like, great, we're doing such an awesome job. And so we had like our, our paper towels set down and like a flagstone for basking and a big piece of cork for climbing and our TAUVB tube in a under counter light fixture and a heat lamp. Mm-hmm. At least it wasn't red. Uh, <laughs> I knew that much. Um, and they were named Nabooru and Deliora, uh, kind of based on a video game and an anime, I think. Right. And oh, they're dear. just cool sounding names. Yeah. Um, and they had been previously cohabited, so we felt pretty comfortable about letting them stay together. Um, they were in this massive, like, oh gosh, what, how big was that thing? It was like a four by two by four enormous setup with two other bearded dragons. It was actually pretty cool. 
Um, we seemed to get along nicely for the space that they had, but, um, so we kept them together and eventually they started picking fights with, with each other. So we separated them and, but, uh, that's really where I started looking into the information that was available. And I went, huh, it's really, really hard to find sources that agree on the internet. And there's a lot of different information and there's a lot of information on, on sites that don't have a lot of authority. But if you don't know what to look for, then how are you going to be able to tell the difference between a good site and a bad site and good information and bad information. And I was combing through forums and Facebook groups and trying to find the common threads. And so I, at the time I worked in um, search engine optimization Mm -hmm. marketing. And one of the perks that I had through my job was uh, a sandbox site. They'd buy a domain for you and you could just learn how websites work and uh, thus become better at um better at the job so i did that and uh for a while i was experimenting with blogging my sister was a food blogger for a while and so i wanted to kind of figure out you know it something similar i wanted to give it a try because i'm very competitive and whatever my sister does i can do better (laughs) is my generally my mentality um And she is completely unaware of this competition. She's like, Mariah, you're nuts. But me, it's always just like, oh, I must be alpha superior. <laughs> so that's kind of... Are you younger or older? I'm older. Oh, uh, okay. Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so anything she does, I can do better. That's like the theme of my life and our relationship. <laughs> and it's simmered down a little bit, at least, as we've uh, matured. But um, eventually I just decided, hey, why don't I write... a a care guide on bearded dragons based on the best of the sources that I can find at the time and kind of just share it with people who don't have the interest to, um, or the ability to do their own research because, you know, believe it or not, there are some people who really don't like to, uh, have their nose in various sources on animal care all day long. That's my cup of tea, but I know there are a lot of people who, don't really care for all of that cross-referencing. Well, um, I did so. not know these people existed. Right? Like, <laughs> why aren't we all the just formula? at the library they for just days? Want the recipe? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that's uh, that's basically how I wrote my first care guide. Was or my first reptile care guide? Anyway, um, was putting together the sources and just doing the best I could. And there were a lot of things that um, I got wrong. Thing that It was very infused with uh, folklore husbandry practices and um, just common practice that wasn't best practice uh, based on misinformation. But it was a start. And my interest there, you know... Um, I liked the project so much that when we got our next reptile, um, I think it was a blue tongue skink next and Indonesian blue tongue skink. I did something for him too on blue tongue skinks. And then I did something on doom rolls boas because then we acquired a boa. Um, and so as the, the number of pets grew, so did my, 
my research projects. And I mean, you can barely call them research. I was just looking for any information I could find that looked decent enough um, and slap it together. I didn't really have a core philosophy or anything like that to drive. It was just whatever seems to be working best. We'll put that together. Um, And so for a while there, you know, I was making a lot of the same beginner mistakes. You know, I, the Dumeril's boa was uh, kept in a, a way too small tub. I know that for a fact with Aspen shavings and an unregulated heat pad um, and definitely inadequate ventilation. Um, and uh, Lutung Skink, I think he was also on Aspen despite being Indonesian. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was a lot of word of mouth like, oh, a friend of mine told me that, you know, this is okay to do. So... I'll just do that. I wasn't even monitoring temperatures for the most part. Like just doing things from the seat of my pants. And yeah, I had these resources, but I wasn't applying them very well. And, or when there wasn't a lot of information, I just kind of went with whatever seemed best but when you're that new to it you don't have the instincts to do that um and eventually uh we gave away the numerals boa because he hated my husband (laughs) (laughs) um he liked me just couldn't stand my husband for some reason um and so husband put the foot down and off with the boa i still miss him his name was strider wow Uh, um is kind of ironic because you know he's a snake but anyway um Ah, uh, <laughs> you I mean, got you it. Honor Lord Aragorn somehow. Yeah, no, that's exactly, a, right? a good locomotion pun. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very well. Uh, let's see. So the turning point I think came when uh, I decided to branch out into a species that I hadn't kept, but I was curious about. Um, or no, it was the blue tongue skink care guide. Uh, that was a bigger project because there are several subspecies of blue tongue skink and our species and subspecies. And so it was a bigger project. And at the time I was actually, um, uh, taking a class, uh, at the, at my university on technical writing because, um, fun fact, I started as a pre-med major at Brigham Young University. And I uh, eventually realized that all of the things that I was looking at would not give me a good work-life balance. And that was something that was important to me. So I had a small life crisis and eventually switched to something that I figured would make me a little bit happier. Um, Though I love studying uh, the medical field. It's very interesting to me. I love both veterinary medicine and human medicine for a long time. I wanted to be a horse vet. I think x-rays are the coolest things in the world. Um, but so I switched to actually writing as my major. Um, and it was because of that switch that I came across my technical writing class and I never really cared about connecting with my professors. I just, they were my professor and that was it. Like I, took the class and that was that. But there was something different uh, with this class. It intrigued me because the um, 
my professor worked as a consultant of some kind for a company on the side. And so he had a very, he was much more in control of his lifestyle than average. And I liked that idea of life more on my terms. And so there was that draw as well as the final project for the class was write a technical manual on anything, just Mm -hmm. write a technical manual. And I said, anything? And he's like, yeah, anything that suits your fancy. This is going to fit your 20-page paper uh, requirement for graduation. And I'm like, what about, say, how to care for an animal? Nice. And he goes, yeah, that would work as long as it's 20 pages. And I'm like, oh, I can go beyond 20 pages. Easy. <laughs> <laughs> Easy. No problem there. And... So because of the requirements placed on this and um, and the guidance that I received from this professor, I spent so much time in his office just double-checking things and proofing. And so he was, and around the same time, I was learning more about how to um, find papers and uh, sort uh, find more authoritative sources. And so I started pulling all of this together and the Blue Tongue Skink Care Manual was the first better sourced care guide, the the most comprehensive care guide I had produced um, at the moment. And it just lit a fire under me. Like this was something with the encouragement of my professor. I thought, what if I made this my life? Like I would love to make this my life. And that's when the blog started to take a more serious turn. Um, I got a new job around that time. I purchased streptophiles.com and I just started to really invest in this what if that had taken root. And then I came across, I started researching um, hognose snakes and um, that led me to, because I couldn't find as many sources as I wanted to. So I started looking more at the papers and specifically natural history of the animals and okay, where's that going? And, oh, that's really interesting. What if we keep them the way that they evolved and by looking at their biology rather than just what uh, looking at the captive picture and that was a big leap. And then around that same time, I read the um, Arcadia Guide to, uh, what is that book? Uh, Vision. The Arcadia Guide to Bioactive. That's the one. Yeah. And I didn't want to... Um, to be a copycat or anything like that, but I resonated strongly with the, um, with the ideas presented there that if we want these animals to thrive in captivity and that is what the goal of zoos is. So looking at what zoos are doing, then we need to be recreating their habitat. We need to be looking at their biology. And I'm like, yes, this, this is the future. This is the way forward. And it's, and the rest is kind of history. I've I've taken my passion for researching and reading and finding sources. And it's like a treasure hunt for me. And compiling into guides. Um, and then recently, just to help increase my reach and help more people, um, I've 
taken a break from creating these massive care manuals. The last one I created, I think, was on red-eared sliders. That was quite the project. I think there was a... I had a lot of other things going on inside, but I think I ended up spending like at least a year on that. Mm. Um, just finding things and talking to pe- people and figuring it all out. And anytime you get both or you get a semi-aquatic animal, the husbandry gets really complicated because you're dealing with not only terrarium maintenance, but also with aquatic maintenance. And that's, and I had a lot to learn about aquarium maintenance because even though I'd had fish and a turtle of my own, was I doing it well? No, I wasn't. So (laughs) relearning all of that uh, was a big hurdle there. Uh, but with every care manual, I've become better and better at um, at finding sources. And more importantly, I'm creating a bigger picture of not just one-off, okay, becoming an expert in one particular species or a group, but trying to see reptiles as a whole from the bird's eye view. And I'm seeing that actually they have a lot of things in common. And once you pick out a couple of like key features about the animals, and especially as I have been spent the last two years has been particularly invested in um, care sheets. So that um, that has been my goal to increase reptophiles reach. And I need to get out of the sun here. Um and to increase reptiles reach and help more people that is ultimately my goal i've really started to see all the things in common and that each species is not as unique as some people assert that they are they definitely have some amazingly unique things about them like every reptile has something really interesting about them that just grabs me i i love the discovery of just figuring out their nuances and so every time somebody asks me, you know, what's your favorite reptile? It's usually the one that I'm researching at the moment because there's always just something fascinating about the animal. I don't think I've ever come across a species where I've just been like, I hate this thing. This thing's really boring. Like there's just nothing that grabs me. Uh, there's always something mm-hmm. just absolutely wonderful about every species that I find some find to love. And, you know, they might be super cute. They might be ugly cute. <laughs> like, there's always something. Uh, my husband, I really would love to have a European legless lizard, a Sheltapusik. Uh, my husband thinks they're the ugliest things I've ever seen. Uh, so won't they look like Voldemort? Like, they're I think so it's great. Cool. Yeah, they're really cool. Um you have to show like, them that video of one just like, uh, have you seen the video where it's just like gently grabbing snails off the grass and eating them? No, but that sounds wonderful. It's, it's it's like the most wonderful video. It just brings me so much joy, but maybe you can convince him with that. <laughs> maybe, maybe. I need to get the space. <laughs> I am officially out of space. And they are Sorry. I don't mean to interrupt, but everybody says they're officially out of space. And then you either find like, well, you know, if I hang a cage from the ceiling and <laughs> I just add another another circuit, another breaker, right? I can just put another breaker box on the other side of the house. You know, like it, space is always at a premium. And yet there's always a little bit more. You can always juggle a little, right? It is true. It's driving my husband nuts. Uh, the last yep. justification was... Um, my viper geckos. 
I've got mm-hmm. a trio of males, um, and they are honestly. I don't know why more people aren't keeping them. They're fantastic. Micro geckos are a delight. I, yeah. I mean, what's not to love? They're tiny. They're cute. It's so easy to house them well because they don't take up a lot of space. So you take a four inch lizard and you can give it a freaking mansion while it is really not taking up that much space in your house. Totally. So, and they're just funny to watch. I feel like they, even though they're smaller, they have really big personalities and they're always up to something. So I've been bit by the micro gecko bug. (laughs) Um, Easy bug to get. Smaller species are amazing. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, totally. Uh, Let's see. Where is I? Uh, Oh yeah. The, um, just seeing things from a bigger picture um, has really given me some unique insights on, you know, how, how reptiles work as a whole. And I've definitely encountered in my line of work, people who assert you can't just extrapolate from one species to um, draw conclusions about another. And they are correct in that it is risky. You, you can't just idly compare a ball Python to a Euromastix. Like that doesn't work very well uh, for the most part. So you have to know, the animals have to have something in common. But when you are looking for information about a species that is really rare and just not well documented in captivity, you have to start making some comparisons. And ideally, you find keeper accounts to know at bare minimum, okay, what's going to work? Like how... Where are the people who've kept them alive for a few years? Maybe they've bred, maybe they haven't, but where's our where's our starting point? Okay, we've got that. Then what does their natural environment look like? Okay, gee, that natural environment looks similar to another species somewhere else that is better established in captivity and we know the parameters for them. So, hey, that's probably going to work. And then you start putting the puzzle pieces together. Um, so... You can compare and you can't compare and it and knowing where the comparisons can be drawn is part of the fun of the puzzle, in my opinion. Um, but uh, it's just um, and so some people, when you think of a researcher, you think of um, somebody who's like actually conducting the studies and they're on the, uh, they're on the ground. They're the ones out in the field. They're the ones in the lab. Um, and I'm definitely not one of those types of researchers. Um, but I am the kind of person who takes their data and I am a compiler. I take what is, what is available and I try to crunch it into something that a whole picture that makes sense that a summary of mm-hmm. what is likely to be best practice. And sometimes, you know, I do get it wrong and somebody calls me out and they're like, actually it doesn't work that way. And I'm like, Hey, all right, that hurts the pride a little bit, but thanks for letting me know that I drew the wrong conclusion there. And so I course correct and keep going. Um, but that's yeah. the type of researcher I am. <laughs> I do my best to uh, helping people gives me a lot of joy. I love, um, seeing people who are passionate about animals and 
helping them realize their passion in a way that is going to hopefully help prevent guilt later on. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and just create, create the foundation for a positive relationship with their pet where they know they're doing the best they can for their animal and they're treating it like a sentient being mm. in their life because that's what pets are, right? Pets are life mm-hmm. partners. They're they, admittedly for a lot of us, they do start as a, a kind of uh, entertainment item, so to speak, um, a living toy. But as we grow and mature, we can, and as we learn more about the animals, we start to realize they're beings just like us that deserve, that have their own needs that, deserve their own respect and if i can help people see that in their animals then i mean the only way we can go from there is up yeah if we can just mm-hmm. start to value them as individuals and and stop saying well it's just an animal it's just a snake it's just a lizard we're just humans at the end of the day so if we can see them as equals in a sense and use forgive me for saying this, a degree of anthropomorphism to mm-hmm. to let us be motivated to care for the animals in our lives better. It's not only going to help us have a more fulfilling relationship with our pets, it's also going to make us better people, mm-hmm. more empathetic, more compassionate, not only toward animals, but probably toward other people as well. Because in order to care for an animal well, you need to be able to put yourself in its shoes a little bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you, you, you said a couple well of said. things. Uh, yeah, very well said indeed. You said a couple of things that stood out to me. One was about, um, you know, the way we commonly think about researchers. And I'd like to set that aside and talk about that in a second. But I but I also want to um, just kind of spin off a little bit about what you were saying with regard to um, how a lot of reptiles are actually highly similar. Um, and you made the comparison between say like, oh, it's hard to draw similarities between say like a ball python and a Euromastix. And it's like, well, yeah, maybe in terms of like the the like the 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 nuts and bolts of their their care parameters. Yeah, maybe that's very different. But I oh, you know, all reptiles want to feel safe. They're going to want to eat. They're going to want to explore and evade boredom to to a certain degree. They're all going to want to breed, right? So there's there's other kinds of similarities that people maybe overlook because they avoid the anthropomorphization of that animal. Right. And I, and I get that there's like sort of like the more harmful or um, like erroneous, useless kinds of anthropomorphism, like, Oh, look, they're cuddling. It's like, that's not useful anthropomorphism. Right. But all reptiles, they want to feel safe in their space, period. Like reptiles and every one of them. And this is such a simple thing that like, there are many, many ways of interpreting whether or not your animal feels safe. And, you know, the more you um, kind of get in tune with those things, the more you can understand what is going to make that individual animal or that group of animals feel safe and how you might be able to apply that to other things. Right. So I think that's super apt that you pointed that out. Um, And then the part about the, 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 there being different kinds of researchers. Um, I think this is something that Roy and I got into on one of our solo shows t- to a certain extent, which is, <clears throat> you know, 
just because you're you you did you're not working in, in a university in a lab with a lab coat on or in the field doesn't mean you're not doing research and garnering information. I mean, um, I I know I sound you know this is going to sound like arrogant, and it's not intended to be that way at all. But like, you be, it's probably not a lot of people on the planet who have seen more ornate Euromastics in their hand than I have. Like, there are some, sure, like by all means, there are some people out there, but it's a small number, right? And so there's like just because I don't have uh you know phd after my name or you know the, the work isn't being done in a laboratory that everybody thinks of as a laboratory there's still information being garnered that can be considered research in some respect so i you know i have a um i don't know what the, you saying that uh you didn't say that exact thing but I, that's kind of what i got out of what you said and i and i just like have an appreciation for for pointing that out because i think it's um really often overlooked you know um yeah. yeah it's you are absolutely one of the i would say foremost experts on the captive care of uromastics at this point and okay yeah sure you haven't really done any formal studies but your experience is still invaluable and you have a lot of experience across a wide variety of individuals as well as species and as is suggested by, you know, your your brand, Arids Only, you know Arids. Yeah. You know them inside and out. You're, and you are able to draw conclusions because of the commonalities that they all have that none of us would be able to come to. Mm-hmm. And I mean, that's such valuable expertise. And it, well, I mean, it, and I think it speaks to also the kind of work that you're doing in, you know, combing through existing information, being able to, to, you know, um, sort that and say like this website that is actually just like a weird blog by some person wherever in the universe that doesn't have any citation, that doesn't have any, there's no legitimate source material. There's no, like, there's no real sense that this, this might even, this might even be generated by AI. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, I don't know what this is. This is not, you know, this is not useful information about sandfish, but this paper, this one, this is done in the UAE. And this was done, you know, like you can see that there were multiple authors on this paper and you can say like, oh, here's, here's the regions where they were studying and here's how he's how long they studied at what time of year and what they were looking for. This is, this is legitimate information that I can, I can then transplant and add some of the content here into this care guide or, you know, whatever it may be. That's, that's super valuable. And I think, you know, you, you know, you, you, you we kind of joked a little bit about it earlier, but I think there's a real, like providing a service for the folks who maybe don't want to, have to do all that research themselves. I mean, look, you know, uh, what's that thing at a, uh, in very, you know, you hear it in, in all kinds of circles, like do your own research, DYR or whatever, or whatever. That's great and all. And like, yes, technically we all should be, but the reality is not everybody's going to, and not everybody's going to have the time. Maybe not everybody's going to have the patience for it. So there's like a real value to, putting that kind of thing together. So with that in mind, um, 
I mean, I know we've sort of talked a little bit about this, but can you elaborate a little bit more on like what sets Reptifiles apart from other herpetocultural resources? And then um, sort of additionally, um, was there a point at which other than, you know, I mean, you mentioned the, the, the blue tongue skink uh, mm-hmm. hair guide, but like, you know, when did it really start to take on like a life of its own in terms of, um, you know, not just like what you were putting into the content, but when you really started to see like, you know, like larger returns on people really utilizing what you were putting out there and, and giving you feedback on, on how useful it was and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so one of the reasons I started Reptifiles as a site rather than anything else, like I could have gone into zoological research. I think it would be really fun to traipse around habitats and really be on the same level as these animals and try to gather data on them. But one of the reasons I wanted to start just a plain old website, really a database was, as I mentioned before, I was inspired by Melissa Kaplan and the way how accessible her information was and there's so many misleading sources or just one-off sources that come up when you google a question about reptile care I wanted to put something out there that people could find easily because heaven knows a lot of academic research if you can find it in the first place is hidden behind a paywall that's not helpful And okay, veterinarians might be able to use it and that's great, but there's thousands of pet owners that need help and they need easy to access help. And so that's why I decided to start putting my information on something as humble as just a blog. And it's only now, heck, I started with a writing degree and it's only now that I'm uh, working on my master's degree in something relevant. Um, uh, natural, natural history-based animal husbandry, uh, zoo science at West Liberty University. I'm chipping away at that. I didn't get into the field because I didn't know that it was even something that could be formally trained. Mm-hmm. I just thought for the longest time that I was inventing my own field. And in a sense, I was. But I just thought, well, if I want formal education, I'm going to have to extrapolate like or take a zoology degree and with a herpetology focus and shoehorn my interest in husbandry into it because all of the husbandry programs I could find or think of were like agricultural. So cows and horses and sheep and okay, that's cool, but not, not helpful to my area of interest. So it's only recently, you know, when people ask, well, why didn't you study this earlier? It's like, I didn't know it existed, man. (laughs) I would have been all over this earlier, believe you me, but it took me, I want to say six years of running Reptifiles before I came across Dr. Loafman um, on the Animals at Home podcast and went, oh, you know, the yeah. Spider-Man meme? Like, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it was a wonderful day when that happened. Um, so let's see. Uh, your question was, so it was, it was as a resource, uh, something yeah, about that. So what, what sets, what are some sets of the it apart? Sets yes. What sets it apart? Okay. So most resources, most websites, aside from the fact that, um, they're not, the information isn't usually very good. Um, they're one-off accounts. Typically, uh, you have forums, which are great, uh, amalgamations of, keeper experiences. 
And that can be really useful for just getting the anecdotes, Find, finding your uh, the entire swath of data, you know, from what are common keeper mistakes that people are uh, spending a lot of time solving. Um, and, you know, how do we prevent these common mistakes all the way up to the examples of the really stellar husbandry. And so you can see the whole swath when you comb through these forums, whether it's um, uh, kingsnake.org or whatever, and, or um, or some Facebook forum. They're minefields for sure, but there's still valuable information to be found. It's just, you gotta dig. Yeah. And so... What sets Reptifiles apart is I'm not a one-off account. I'm a filtered amalgamation of experiences. I have my own animals that help give me hands-on experience with reptiles as a whole. I have some geckos. I have some skinks. I have some snakes. I used to have turtles. I've admittedly never had a tortoise. One day, I would really love to um, adopt a gopher tortoise. Nice. Uh, I think that would be a lot of fun, uh, but for now, not really a possibility, but one day, yeah. um, or if I ever have the space, I think adopt, uh, keeping an outdoor sulcata in a paddock would be phenomenal. Yeah. Uh, so that's my, that's my pipe dream. Um, so Reptifiles is a combination of sources. It's a, it's not everything on the internet uh, as what you're going to see the problem with AI is it's not very filtered very well. Mm. It's not one-off account of just this is me and my experience with one and a half crested geckos. Um, I'm trying to represent the literature of, okay, this is what the researchers in the field uh, are, are saying about say, crested geckos in the wild. This is what established breeders are saying about crested gecko husbandry. This is what um, this is what keepers are saying about crested geckos in captivity. And so taking that broad view of the topic and then distilling it by what what's in common, um, what are the common problems that are presented? What are the common solutions? How do those how can those solutions be implemented into husbandry to make better husbandry? Um, and then what are the best examples that we should be shooting for? All of that, it's an amalgamation of sources. And that's what makes Reptifiles different from everything else is it's not just me. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's a collection. Um, it's a summary. Yeah. And I need to do a better job of representing that. It's a little difficult to cite like, you'll see sometimes in my care sheets um, that I referenced an entire forum site. Yeah. 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 <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, or an entire group. And that's because literally I was spending hours scrolling through posts um, under certain subjects. Like, okay, what are people doing? Oh, feeding schedule. Okay. We see this works. That's that works. Apparently that one's worked. Okay. What are people doing in common? Okay. Are we seeing any problems? Just, mm-hmm trying to that's what i'm doing is yeah. i'm not just taking oh you know the amateur keepers um opinions i'm trying to get a feel for what is common practice what is best practice what is worst practice within that whole sphere mm. um it's a fun project uh, it's not for everybody but for me i i enjoy mm. sifting like that 
and it's and that's that's so useful. I mean, um, as you said, yeah, some of those forums and different various groups can be minefields, sure, but it's also you know, it would be silly to write off the utility of some of those spaces and what that kind of, mm-hmm. uh, you know, like crowdsourcing of mm-hmm. care can really, really yield. Cause it's like, even, even if it was as simple as like, well, a lot of people appear to be having these problems. And then, you know, if you're, if you're looking at it from the bird's eye view and you say, it's like, well, a lot of people have these problems, but a lot of people are also doing this, this one or two weird thing that may be like, mm-hmm. Maybe if you didn't do that, you, that problem might go away. Or, mm-hmm. well, mm-hmm. you know, it turns out you may, you might be able to garner from the Euro Club uh, on Facebook. You might be able to say, "Oh, mm-hmm. well, looks like people are averaging about a year or so before they're totally skittish and and crazy." Euromastics goes from that to he'll hand feed, you know, and I can reach it and I can reach into the cage and do my maintenance without him bolting for the hide. Oh, it seems like it's taking about a year. That's that's useful information for a new keeper, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't think you see that that sort of thing that often. And I feel like most of the time, the care guides that you know you might see here and there are either really, really heavily leaning on the sort of um, scientific literature, or really, really, really leaning heavy on the sort of experiential. Like, as you said, I, I keep one, one and a half crested geckos and here's what happened with my stuff, which is funny, you know, yeah. but it's, have, have something that is more of a fusion of those things, as well as the zoomed out, you know, kind of bird's eye view of, you know, an entire group of people keeping the same kind of animal. That's highly useful information. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, yeah. When you, when you restrict yourself to only one type of source, you develop blind spots inevitably. If you're focusing only on keeper experience, then you only get the captive perspective. If you focus only on the scientific literature, you're only really going to see the lab and or the natural habitat, which uh, it's not that informative if you don't have a captive uh, component to compare against and be able to translate wild conditions to captive conditions. Um, if you rely only on published books, one, you risk all of your information being out of date. But on the other hand, if you say, oh, I don't, I won't read those books because they're out, all out of date, then you can actually really miss out on the good practices, even the brilliance oh, yeah. of keepers who came before. Um, Philippe de Vostrelli is a really great example. Mm-hmm. Those books are still staples in the hobby for a reason. All of the information, some of it hasn't aged well, but there are other insights that are absolutely invaluable that these books have to offer on the species. And that's why it's still important to keep them together. So one of my goals is to avoid developing those blind spots. And now that I'm working on my master's degree, taking getting things more from a... Um, an academic perspective than I've had. Uh, Like the most recent class I took was on um, animal welfare and animal behavior. And that was fascinating. I got access to literature. I didn't even know know existed Uh, and discussions on, okay, let's talk about emotions in non-mammal animals. Mm-hmm. Let's broaden our definition of emotion. Okay, sure, let's go there. What are the indicators of welfare? How can I incorporate that into the care guys? You know, and it turns out from species to species, 
I mean, even between snakes and lizards, the basic um, indicators of good welfare are really not the same. A happy reptile is a happy reptile. And, but knowing that welfare is something I want to help teach people to be able to see in their animals, because a lot, one of the most common arguments that you see from keepers um, who are being a little bit stubborn is he's happy. He's happy and thriving. It's like, but is he? Like, okay, tell me about your parameters. What's the exact behavior? And then they say, oh, yeah, he just absolutely loves sitting on his basking rock all day long. He's so content. And you go, he's doing that because he's cold. Yeah, yeah, sure. You know? So knowing the natural history of the animal, having an idea of the physiology, that's another thing. Um, You don't take the medicine into account, uh, the physiology of the animal. That also develops a blind spot. I have found... That um, so I subscribe to um, the ARAV's Veterinary Journal because I find that the case studies that are published there are very informative about okay what are the common problems because when you see the common problems you can see where we need to be improving as a whole in husbandry mm-hmm. um, and a vet is not a husbandry specialist and a husbandry specialist is not a vet we need to work together. And we have a lot to learn from each other as well. Uh, I, I in fact, find the problems that are reported more informative than the success stories. Mm. A success story, you're like, okay, clearly the animal is surviving under those conditions. Neat. Glad to know that they can tolerate that. It's knowing what they can't tolerate that really shows you, okay, where do we need to start narrowing things down? Why yeah. doesn't this work? And, you know, even, even something like time scale, you know, can, can really change when someone says, oh, he's happy and thriving. It's like, well, mm-hmm. okay, I noticed that you joined the Euro Club in January of 2021 and you have a single Euromastix JRI. Okay, that animal has like a 30 plus year lifespan, probably more. Mm-hmm. Uh, a year, a year and a half two years or well, I guess 23 now. So it's a year and a half, almost, almost two years of, of care is not enough time to really determine whether or not something is happy or thriving. Right. Mm -hmm. Like I, you know, there's no way I've been keeping Xenogama for, I don't know, like six years or something, seven years. And I still, I'm not convinced that I know I don't have enough information to be sure that they're all happy and thriving because they've got long, you know, they live a while, like they, they live a good long time for a, for a small little toad of a lizard, you know, like they're, they're just, they're a lot longer lived and I can't, I'm not hundred percent sure when I've got them living to the, to the end of their potential, right. To the, to the upper end of their potential lifespan mm-hmm. in a healthy way with as yeah. few problems as possible. Okay. Maybe then. And when someone who chimes in on the forums and says, Hey, listen, this is the way I've been caring for my Molly Euromastics for 25 years. Okay. Maybe then I'm going to give it, you know, that, that time scale mm-hmm. gives it more credibility in some regard. And that's not the kind of thing you see in mm-hmm. a single post, right. That, that, that's like uh, more, subtle, more nuanced information, right? At least mm-hmm. in some regard. Um, keep, I, you guys mind if I go fill up my water bottle real quick? You guys want to keep it? it? Okay. Yeah, Sorry. go for it. Yeah. I feel like another like aspect all of, of all of this too, and just kind of like this, this process of like synthesizing that you're describing that you do 
is you have to have enough experience to actually discern what is good information and what is bad. Mm -hmm. You know, that, and like that is just such a, that's such a big piece of it because I think that like it doesn't make, you know, it's it's no good to synthesize all the information that's out there, right? Mm -hmm. Because a lot of the information that's out there is actually um, deleterious. It's actually harmful (laughs) to what your bottom line is, right? And so, there's a degree to which you need to have like you need to know reptiles you need to know how to do things you know and have a general sense of like like you're saying their physiology their biology um and i don't know i just feel like that's a that's a important piece to just presence and all of it mm-hmm. and you need to keep an open mind and acknowledge that things change there's always the possibility of stumbling across a new nugget of information where, okay, you need to reevaluate your view of these animals because it's funny that Phil brought up, you really should be listening to the people who said, okay, I've kept this one species for 25 years. Here's how I've done it. Those accounts are so valuable. Um, But it's also important to figure out who you're listening to as well. Reptiles are so resilient they are survival masters and they're not always, well, when there's a problem, it usually has to be a pretty big problem before we'll notice it. One, we don't speak reptile and two, they're just really good at hiding their symptoms. They don't whine about it on the couch and be like, oh, I feel terrible today. They say, nope, there's food to be eaten, bugs to be hunted and predators to be avoided. So I might be on death's door, but you're not going to find out about it. And I am always really cautious when I see a breeder. Uh, it's usually breeders. It's not always breeders, but it's usually breeders. Um, there's also longtime herb keepers um, who have been like, I've been doing this for 20 years and I believe there is absolutely nothing that I can change to improve. Um, and they, they're breeding, they're eating, they're definitely healthy. And this is, that means that I know the pinnacle of reptile husbandry. It cannot be approved upon. And it's that kind of mentality. That's like one of those red flags for me. It's like, okay, if that person with uh, 25 years with the Euromastic said, I know for a fact that I am providing the best husbandry that is possible for Euromastics and there is no way to improve, then I'd be like, I'm going to take your account with a grain of salt. But if the same person says, I'm learning something new every year, I... I'm always watching my animal, trying to tweak his environment to better suit his needs. You know, could he need it warmer? Could he need it more humid? Could he need more hiding opportunities? Should I uh, offer like a, a different, like should I change the diet a little bit? Somebody who's attentive to making changes, that's the kind of person I want to listen to. Yeah, uh, Absolutely. It's it's stagnation that's the real killer. Yes, yeah. We this is something we've I think we've we've echoed plenty of times and is worth it. Just bears to repeat all the time, which is learning to be responsive to your animal. You know, mm-hmm. I, like you know, there, there's nobody's going to tell you what they need better than the animal themselves. You know, just just listen to the animals. And it, you know, you said, oh, we don't speak reptile, and it's and it's like, okay. <clears throat> you know, on some level, I feel like a massive percentage of what experience means with an animal is learning how to speak Euromastics, learning how to speak 
Polygris Pruvianus, right? Learning how to speak uh, Chalcides yeah. Ocelotus, right? Like you, you've got to learn what those animals are telling you and, and, and where that's coming from. Like what separate the signal from the noise and say, okay, why is this happening? You know, and you know, both good and bad, right? If something good is happening too, don't just take it for granted. Use that as like mm-hmm. a, a way of, you know, it's all a compass, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Just learning back in. and forth and back and forth. There's so yeah. much new ones. Yeah. Yeah. And it's never just pointing true North all the time ever. You know, it's never mm-hmm. stays there anyway. As soon as you think, ah, oh, there it is, there it is. And it's like, oh, God damn it. No, it's off of this angle again. And you're just like, oh, you know, like the, what's the thing on the ship? The the wheel, what's that wheel thingy that they use on pirate ships? The, oh, <laughs> I don't hey, know. What, don't know. <laughs> I don't know what that thing's called. But, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I always just thought it was a steering wheel. <laughs> I mean, I fi- yeah, I figured among three nerds, we'd figure it out, but I, you know, if my husband were here, he could probably yeah. he could probably tell. Yeah, probably. I'm an ultra terrestrial <laughs> nerd is the problem. My little kitty, she's you, looks you should, like someone's getting in trouble yeah. back there. She is. She, you like yeah. anime, right, Mariah? Yep, I do. You, ever, you watch Hunter X Hunter? No, that's one I haven't seen. Oh man. Okay. Well, her her name is Nefer P two, and and P two for short. Um, it's a character from Hunter X Hunter. So if you ever watch the show, you, you'll see, you'll get it. She's a, she is the monster that she appears to be behaving like at the moment. She's a, Hey, what the hell? <laughs> On the subject of like learning your animal, you know, like I, I've often like likened learning how to care for something like, like it's, it's kind of like learning a language, you know, it's like learning mm-hmm. to speak that, that creature's language and each, each, each species. And sometimes, you know, among individuals, populations or whatever, obviously there are dialects, there are differences. But I think about that a lot with reptiles and like, like they're really the best way is to like, it, it's immersion, you know, it's, it's, it's having time and contact and exposure. And um, that really is what seems to be the difference maker. And also it makes me think like earlier, you, when you were speaking to, you know, starting out as, um, as a hardcore horse girl, you know, in your middle school years and just like how many particularly um, women in her culture have experienced with horses in the past. I feel like that's a similar thing where it's like, like horses require attunement. You know, you have to, you have to find like, okay, how do I attune to this animal? And they're all individuals. Anyone who is around horses enough will tell you it's like they have individual quirks and differences and characteristics. And so it just makes me think that like, like maybe that's part of that overlap, you know, like is that, um, you know, it requires a certain kind of sensitivity and attunement. And maybe those who are good with horses are naturally maybe a little bit better at attuning to what herbs need as well. I think something else about that might be horses are animals that demand respect. Uh, That is, and in fact, part of the taming process for a very long time was basically training them out of that, of, Mm. uh, of killing that, demand for respect and making them compliant. Um, fortunately, things are much better nowadays. Um, but being able to respect another animal as an equal translates very well over to when you're caring for an exotic. 
Uh, something I've actually noticed about keeping wild caught animals in particular is that they are less tolerant of disrespect. Um, a, a captive bred animal, they're more patient with their human shenanigans and like, okay, what are you, what kind of bull crap are you up to? Okay, fine. Whatever. Um, do what you want. I'm going to do what I do. But a wild caught reptile is usually they're sharper. They're, they have a, a much typically a bigger presence and they're not willing to put up with, with nonsense. Uh, they enforce boundaries very well. And in fact, I would say exotics in general are one of our best teachers of boundaries. hundred percent. Yeah. Look, I, like I am going to like, uh, snakes, uh, especially, uh, the bigger, more energetic ones, uh, reticulated pythons. You'll hear from many reticulated Python keepers. This is an animal that demands respect. This is an animal that you need to treat as an equal or else you are in trouble. And it's because they speak so loudly. Uh, mm -hmm. And we have to take them seriously because they're so big. But you can take that same perspective and apply it to the smaller animals as well. The ones that whose voices aren't quite so loud, but they're saying the exact same thing. You have an animal that, you know, you open its enclosure and you put your face right up to it. And you're like, hi, and either it's going to bite your nose or it's going to just run for the hills and hide immediately. Mm -hmm. It's like what Phil was saying. Yeah, we don't speak reptile, but to revise my statement, I'm in total agreement. You have to be listening to what they're telling you. And okay, yeah. if it's hiding from you, it's putting up that boundary of, I don't think you're worth en engaging with. I think you're scary. I'm worried you're going to eat me. I, or, you know, and then there's the ones that are just like, mm, don't touch me. I will watch you. Uh, but you get too close and I'm out of here. Mm -hmm. I want to watch you. I want to engage with you on my terms. But the second that you try to force your hand on me, then I'm out. I'm done. Right. And the more patient ones, you know, will just be like, okay, leave me alone. I'm, I'm leaving this area to a place where you can't touch me. Um, and the less patient ones are going to uh, send a clearer message. Right. Um, and then, you know, knowing what a bite means, part of learning the language, right. Uh, a bite from my boa means, Hey, you're ticking me off. You are messing in my space when I'm not in the mood to be messed with. Leave me alone. Granted, right. that was once. I deserved it. I fully deserved it. <laughs> he was in shed. I was messing about during the day. He was not feeling it. And uh, yeah, I got a little tag with all of his, you know, one millimeter long thing. Um, and he's a dwarf boa. So he's just itty bitty. <laughs> mm -hmm. And this is when he was young. Um, but on the other hand, you know, you have my oscillated skinks. And, oh, yeah, I get bitten by them all the time. But it's because they uh, have a little bit of trouble discerning between my hand and the food that's in my hand. <laughs> right. They're bold. They're curious. They're gregarious. Uh, and they don't see me as enough of a threat to not bite my hand. They're just like, hmm, food? We're right. going to find out. Pinch. Yeah. Uh, maybe if we try that other spot. Pinch. <laughs> you can see the thinking mm -hmm. process going on. Um yeah. And so knowing the difference and, you know, not all bites are bad. No, 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 not at all. And, and they, and they also, um, you know, each of these individual languages that we're like trying to pick up, 
you get more and more in tune with that. Like the longer you spend time, like the longer you're speaking that language, the more subtlety you get, you know, mm-hmm. so I, I recently made this post on my, on my Instagram and I, I don't really know where it came from. I don't know like what the, the inspiration was exactly behind it. Some of it probably some of the new projects I've taken on recently, like the Schneider skinks and some of these other random thingies here at my place. But, you know, I made this post about like endurance, you know, and how it's, you know, it's something we normally think of in sort of like a uh, sports context, but um, it's also, uh, did we, we didn't lose Mariah, did we? Oh, okay. Oh, I just wanted to make sure. No, it's no big deal. I just wanted to make sure that we didn't, I wasn't uh, talking and you didn't hear. That's all. It's all good. You know, Um, you know, it's, it's not just about how long can you, keep up a pace or, 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 um, you know, maintain a certain energy expenditure. It's also like when you've been messing around with, uh, the same group of animals for a very, 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 very long time, every little thing takes on a totally new and different kind of, um, kind of tone, kind of tenor, you know, and it's like, you, you know, you, you get to distinguish between these moments of like, is this a a bite because I'm threatened or a bite because I'm trying to like, as you so eloquently put it, which is setting a boundary. Am I setting a boundary here? Or is this just a mistake? You know, I, I often think about my, um, Egyptian, uh, Euromastics, which I've, I've recently donated, um, uh, not long ago to, uh, to Thai park in, in Florida. But um, the pork chop, the male, who's like a huge, he's like a massive, massive Euromastics. He bit me uh, like two or three times. He's latched onto my finger. And that's an animal that if he wanted to, he just shakes or decided to rip or run like it's going to deglove a finger. I mean, it's, it's, it's not a monitor, but it's a, it's a problem. It's a, da- it's, it's a painful mm-hmm. and potentially uh, damage causing bite. But each time he did it, he bit, he held on, he hissed with my finger in his mouth mm-hmm. and he looked at me and he just steadily increased the pressure of the bite. And then he let go. And he, it's like, he, it, that was a boundary. That was get the fuck off my rock, dude. This is my rock. You're not hanging out on my rock anymore. This is where I find my females stay out of my space. I don't want you here. He's mm-hmm. not afraid of me. I mean, he's not, he's obviously not afraid of me at all. You know, mm-hmm. that's, but you know, if you, you don't know any better, you could take that as like, Jesus, he's a real asshole or like, oh man, this guy's, you know, this is just such a pain in the ass lizard, but it's not, he's not, he's, mm-hmm. he's setting a boundary. And, and it w- would have taken me a long time. I think had he, he been my first Euromastix to, mm-hmm. to really get an idea of like, what is this guy saying to me? And yeah, I, I, like, yeah, I like that. I hadn't, I don't think I'd heard anybody say, uh, the, the, the idea, like, you know, the, the clear boundaries that wild caught reptiles and amphibians tend to set. And I really like that. That's a cool, that's a cool frame of mind. That's very interesting. Something I hear a lot from, um, large monitor keepers in particular, uh, they know these animals are particularly good at making themselves known in a space and demanding equality. And it seems that the most successful monitor keepers are the ones who are very, aware of the fact that they are dealing with an animal that needs to be treated carefully and cannot be abused or else 
Um, it's um, something I feel like that has been really influential in my perception of reptiles um, as individuals and treating them accordingly has been um, Lori Torini's work. Mm-hmm. She she's a snake trainer, sure, but it, but her work can definitely be applied to other types of reptiles easily. Choice based handling is the future. We can't keep forcing ourselves mm-hmm. on our animals, just grabbing them and grabbing them until they numb out and they just let us hold them because they have no other choice. We want our animals to want to be with us. And, you know, some of them just don't want anything to do with us and they're content being doted upon, but, you know, being very much left alone. And then, you know, we do our best to, to accommodate that preference. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I, yeah, that's interesting. I love choice-based handling. That's uh, it's actually, I haven't, I haven't heard that particular phrase before, but I like that. Oh, better. you've got to check out Lori. I, w- I work is yeah. wonderful. Yeah, no, that sounds really, really interesting. Um, something, I think a question that I'd like to, like, I'd like to ask here that I feel like applies, um, sort of broadly to exactly what we're talking about is, um, what are, what are some of like the goals that you have or the motivations that you have as a keeper and, and sort of secondarily, or like additionally, um, what, what, what does, success in keeping look like from your perspective? Because, you know, we kind of mentioned earlier, you know, we have so many folks who will point to say like, I've been breeding these animals for 25 years. And if that's not success, I don't know what is. It's like, mm-hmm. I want to know what, what, you know, what you might think of as good metrics for how we might measure that success. Well, first of all, uh, definitely the five freedoms, um, or uh, five uh, provisions that uh, were defined or redefined rather by David Mellor uh, for welfare. So um, that's going to be, I can't remember all of them off the top of my head. I really should have uh, looked them up beforehand, but anyway, um, that's going to include uh, making sure that the animal is eating well, that the animal is showing good signs of, uh, I would say usually high activity levels are going to be a better uh, indicator of welfare than low activity levels, um, excluding stereotypy. So things like um, pacing are obviously, yeah, that's high activity levels, but that would be a stereotype of stress. So you have to be a little bit careful there, but generally speaking, uh, an energized reptile is an ener- is a reptile that's going to have higher energy levels, um, and they're going to show that by moving around more, being more active in their enclosure. Um, let's see, feeding well, moving well, um, no- exhibiting normal behaviors uh, for their species. So, looking at their body language. Um, that's kind of what we were talking about before with um, speaking their language, getting familiar with the animal's body language, recognizing the um, the indicators of stress and the indicators of well-being, what is normal body language for the animal and what is abnormal. Um, so seeing them express that normal, unstressed body language and along the, the same lines, um, seeing them exhibit natural behaviors and interactions with their environment. 
um, doing what they're built to do. So, you know, if they like to dig, if they like to climb, all these things um, that might come to them naturally, if they are doing these things on their own in their environment, that's a good, uh, another indicator of well-being. Um, obviously, avoiding illness. Uh, that's actually one of my biggest goals when I'm designing and uh, devising reptile husbandry plans is, okay, how do we avoid illness? Because it's been stated by vets, um, and it's something that I firmly believe, is that most illnesses, not all, but most reasons why people bring their reptiles to the vet can be prevented with good husbandry. And so minimizing uh trips to the vet, there's always going to be accidents. There's always going to be like, you know, you make mistakes in your husbandry or whatnot that cause you to need to go to the vet for reasons other than, you know, your animal annual checkup. But overall, um, minimal illness is always going to be a good sign. Um, in a social species, an indicator for welfare is going to be that the animals are getting along. Um, mm. If they're not getting along, that probably means that you look, that something needs to change, that you need to provide more basking spots, that they need more space, that you need to provide more um, separate food opportunities. Um, and even, you know, it could be stated that, you know, the animal not being stressed in the presence of humans could also be considered an indicator of uh, well-being because we interact with them on a daily basis. So if the animal has a positive association with its human caretaker, then that means that it's going to overall be less stressed in, in its environment. And granted, that does take longer for some individuals than others. Can I, um, mm -hmm. would it be all right? I, I, I want to just, uh, I'd like to, maybe not, I, I feel like I feel inclined to use the term push back on, but that's not at all what I'm trying to suggest here. Um, so you mentioned the five freedoms, right? So if I'm not mistaken, some of those freedoms are, you know, some of those things are like freedom from hunger, freedom from thirst, freedom from uh, like stress and predation, freedom from, you know, that sort of stuff. Like, is that accurate? Uh, is some of those yeah, things? Not those entirely, are the five right? freedoms and they do cover some like bare minimums, for example, like freedom from thirst, like really? <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's hardly right. uh, top-notch husbandry. That's really hitting yeah. the bare minimum, but you can use them to mm -hmm. extrapolate. Sure. Mm -hmm. Well, so, I mean, you know, I feel like, uh, so this is something that I've been a little bit curious to get more, uh, like more feedback from people about, because um, in fairness, I'm just going to lead off with this and say that I don't, I don't, I don't, I'm not a hundred, I'm not, intimately familiar with all of the um with like the background of, of whoever came up with these five freedoms and um some of this and you know pretty much most of what i've seen has just been what circulates on social media so i just sort of want to predicate the things i'm about to say with, uh, or at least uh, caveat the things i'm about about to say with that in mind um because you know something that i'm curious about is like you know and, you know, you know I, I agree with you, say, on the, you know, freedom from thirst, right? That is a bare minimum in some regard. But, you know, we know, say, with other animals, including ourselves, that sometimes things like periodic fasting is extremely healthy and useful. Um, you know, uh, it, 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 not to mention some of these things are 
know, uh, I think I saw some some post that talked about the five freedoms in the context of, oh, well, you know, our animals didn't ask to be here. They didn't ask to be in captivity. They didn't ask to be in the wild either. You know, like all of us are sort of brought into the world um, without our consent, for lack of a better word. You know, I mean, it's sort of you know, the, the, the world in which we live. And um, I'm, I'm curious how we might balance the idea that some of these things that might be considered stressors or, uh, you know, otherwise um, challenging circumstances can be really healthful and useful against the idea that we want to have our animals free from certain struggles, right? You know, I, I certainly don't contend with freedom from thirst. That's not something I really have any, I, I don't take issue with that, of course. But, you know, uh, you know, the idea that I, I, I'm, there's no, it, you'd be very hard pressed to convince me that I ought to feed a Euromastix every day, even when they happen to be hungry. You know, yeah. you'd be hard, you'd be hard pressed to convince me that periodic exposure to both cold and hot temperatures um, and, and, and moments of certain types of stress. I mean, you'd be very hard pressed to convince me that those aren't useful tools in keeping a happy, healthy, psychologically refined animal. Right. Um, yeah. Not to mention the whole idea that like they also, you know, if we're talking about animals that didn't ask to be in captivity, they also didn't ask to be in the wild either. So, you know, I feel like, you know, we make certain trade-offs, right? Like when I, when I bring in a new animal, I obviously make the, you know, I, I sort of start with the basic idea that I'm going to do the absolute best I can for this individual animal. You're never going to get, you're never going to be preyed upon. You're never going to get, you know, some of these things that, you know, it's sort of, it's, it's an exchange, right? You're, you're never going to worry about food. You're never going to worry about water. You're never going to worry about getting preyed upon. But at the same time, I have to sort of step in and try to act, you know, um, as like a substitute nature in some regard. Do you, do you understand kind of what I'm throwing down yes. here? Yes. Okay. You bring up a very good point. Um, there, you know, the difference between positive stress and negative stress. And mm -hmm. obviously the presence of predators, that is negative stress. Illness, that's negative stress. Um, and starvation, dehydration, yeah. all negative stress. Um, and they do encounter these things in the wild, but obviously those are not the aspects of um, their, their wild existence that we want to be recreating. We want to be recreating the positive stressors that make them stronger, make them smarter, et cetera, right? That plays right into enrichment activities. We make it harder for them to get food in order to make them smarter and to keep them busy. <laughs> Um, yeah. because in the wild, that is one of the things that occupies, you know, the majority of their day. If they're not running from a predator, they're looking for food because food is hard to get. And even when they find food, they may or may not get it right. Uh, especially when we're talking about snakes, snakes in captivity have a very close, like 90 to 100% success rate when they're striking at their prey. Right. Uh, because we are dangling it in front of their face. It's dead and on a plate. Um, we make life very easy for them in this regard. But in the wild, you know, they miss that animal, that moving animal. It fights its way out of the snake's grasp and it just lost its meal. And they're not going to find these animals uh, very often either. So that's one of the reasons they can go so long between meals is because it is hard for them to get food in the first place. Right. Um, it might be helpful to go over. So 
there's the five freedoms and the five provisions. Uh, the five freedoms, I believe, are something UK government um, document. The five mm-hmm. provisions um, are by uh, are a publication by David Mellor, and they improve upon the original five freedoms in a way that I think that what you're going for, Phil. So the first one is actually a not necessary. It's an improvement on freedom from hunger. It's good nutrition, providing ready access to fresh water and a diet to maintain full health and vigor, which is minimizing thirst and hunger and enabling eating to be a pleasurable experience. So it's not the absence of thirst or the absence of hunger, but uh, keeping them within reasonable bounds. Mm. And also going for making sure that they're getting not just, you know, junk food to fill their stomachs, but that it is good nutrition and a diet that which includes frequency, right? That enables full health and vigor. Um, I do find it interesting also that um, the point that eating should be a pleasurable experience is on this list as well. Mm -hmm. Um, The second provision is a good environment. So providing shade or shelter or suitable housing, good air quality and comfortable resting areas for the animal, which minimize discomfort and exposure and promote thermal, physical and other comforts. The third provision is good health, prevent or rapidly diagnose and treat disease and injury and foster good muscle tone, posture, and cardiorespiratory function by minimizing breathlessness, nausea, pain, and other aversive experiences and promoting the pleasures of robustness, vigor, strength, and well-coordinated physical activity. The fourth is appropriate behavior, provide sufficient space, proper facilities, congenial company, and appropriately varied conditions by minimizing threats and unpleasant restrictions on behavior and promoting engagement and rewarding activities. And the fifth provision is positive mental experiences, provide safe, congenial, and species-appropriate opportunities to have pleasurable experiences by promoting various forms of comfort, pleasure, interest, confidence, and a sense of control over their environment and lifestyle. Mm. Awesome. Yeah, I like those a lot better. Yes, they're a massive improvement on the original five freedoms. Um, and they go right into it. You can use those as a benchmark to see, like, it's just a list, really, of how well am I doing in my husband? Or you can just go down that list and be like, do my enclosures, for example, have good ventilation? No? Okay, that's something to work on because right there, good air quality is on the list. Um, are my enclosure sufficiently varied, you know, maybe I could be mixing up um, the the terrain a little bit more often. Granted, that's going to vary from individual to individual. Some are more excited by changes in their environment than others. My ball python, I changed something and she hides for six months. Um, but my blue tongues think I can change things in his enclosure daily and he'd love it. Right, right, for sure, for sure. Fascinating, yeah. I like that. Yeah, I mean, I, I feel... Part of the reason I even ask about that and sort of contend with it a little bit is just because I, you know, I think it's important that we, uh, you know, really fully grasp and understand exactly why we're using certain, you know, in the same way that we would critique um, someone who uses breeding success as their sole metric for, um you know, for, for whether or not they're doing a good job in the same way that we would sort of critique that, because I would, you know, it's not, it's not an entirely useless metric, right? I mean, right. You know, to a certain degree, especially more sensitive animals, 
really do require a certain level of baseline care in order to successfully reproduce in captivity, yes. right? So it, it it's not it's not out of the question. It's not out of the discussion of what is a useful metric for determining success, right? But it's just it's right. just sort of it's just incomplete, right? Right. And, it's that's a great way yeah. to put it. Yeah, and I just I you know. I don't know. I, I get, I, I have thought that, um, I've said this before with Roy in particular, he and I have talked about this a handful of times, I think both on and off the show, which is that, you know, sometimes I get a little concerned from time to time about, uh, herpetoculture trends, pulling people towards only the new stuff and only sort of like some of the most new and sort of cutting edge concepts around, around keeping. And, you know, we really don't want to throw out the baby with the bathwater, you know, there's so, there's so much good quality experience and information that resides in, um, let's say old school or pre-existing methods of keeping the, the methodology mm-hmm. wasn't all entirely flawed, right? There was so many good merits to it. And, um, mm-hmm. You know, it's it's just something I think about when uh, we see so many trends within our industry sweeping uh, a broad swath swath of people towards a very particular way of thinking. You know, um, yeah. so with that in mind, I'm curious if you feel that in some ways uh, would there be sort of an uh, you know, for lack of a better term, an anti-science bias within herpetoculture? And if you, if you do think that, why? Um, and if not, why? <laughs> it's, it's a softball for you. Bias. Um, can you elaborate on that? Yeah, Roy, can you, do you want to give maybe more of a, a spin up on that? Yeah. I mean, I think that like, for me, this question relates to kind of folklore husbandry, you know, this, this term that we see so often and just kind of the, proliferation of that within herpetoculture and um there can be a resistance you know on both the advancing side and the more kind of like conservative old guard side of herpetoculture to embracing the others you know perspectives viewpoints considering all of that and i think that sometimes that can relate to this like um yeah kind of like throwing out of like the research and evidence that we might have to support, um, you know, certain uh, techniques or strategies that are coming up in herpetoculture. Mm, right. Does that make, okay. does that make I get, sense? I get you. Yeah. Okay. Um, so first, I'd like to acknowledge the, there is unfortunately a trend, and I think it has something to do with uh, the ideology of the current generation that um, all things old are bad. And especially mm-hmm. that um, the older you get, the dumber you get because you can't keep up <laughs> with, um, with okay, boomer. the evolution of technology. <laughs> yes, that whole thing, that whole okay, boomer movement. Um, <laughs> yes. And, and that does spring from, right, the fact that the last 20, 30 years, technology has progressed incredibly fast. And people who are older have had trouble keeping up with that technologically and the way that society has evolved as a result. Um, granted, there are some valid points to that. However, 
it's like you said, throwing out the baby with the bathwater is not what we want to be doing because there is still wisdom to be gained from listening to the experienced um, older members of the reptile community. And they're often breeders, not always. Um, Sometimes they're just experienced keepers who keep the animals for the love of the animals themselves rather than, you know, wanting to try to um, make money off their animals through breeding or just, um, whatever other reasons there are for breeding. Um, And when I'm actually uh, looking to start a new care guide for a reptile, one of the things I'm looking for is for breeder voices. I'm looking for the experienced keepers. And sometimes that that does involve uh, me looking at care sources that are 30, 40 years old, sometimes older, Mm -hmm. um, depending on the species. Uh, I am looking because when the reptile is breeding, when this species is breeding, we can consider that the bare minimum standards for what it takes for them to be thriving, right? Like that's that's one step on the ladder. Um, interestingly, what it often takes for a reptile species to breed, not always, but pretty often, uh, seasonal changes in uh, day length, but also humidity and temperature are likely to be involved. Okay, seasonal fluctuations in their environmental conditions. Guess what? Pet keepers still are not doing. (laughs) Providing Mm -hmm. seasonal variation in their animals' environmental fluctuations. Brumations considered optional for many species. It's like, well, if the animal goes down on its own, it goes down on its own, but there's no reason to promote it. Mm -hmm. We know for a fact that brumation extends their lifespans and plays a major role in successful breeding, which means that it's, it is helping them be healthy enough to accomplish that. It plays a huge role in hormonal cycling because especially with day length, that's triggering changes in their brain, hormonal levels are fluctuating, all of that. And hormones are so important for overall long-term health. And a lot of people are ignoring that, even though this has been established as a bare minimum of breeding for so long. Uh, that's one really good example of why we should not be ignoring breeders. Um, other projects, you know, it's like you said, with um, more sensitive species, knowing what it takes for them to breed is a pretty good benchmark for knowing how to care for them in captivity. Um, sandfish, when I was looking into Skinkus Skinkus, uh, there really was not a lot of care information. And I'm just like, well, what does it take to keep them healthy like okay there's a lot of baseline things but all of these sources are saying oh they only live 10 to 15 or 5 to 10 years that's abysmal for everything except for like a chameleon so mm-hmm. i looked into it further and finally i found an entry on some obscure forum somewhere where somebody had managed to breed these guys like 10 years ago um and they never really did anything with it but they managed it and i was able to use that anecdote from somebody who successfully bred the species to for, to shape the care guide. Um, and so that's an example of how breeder experience is super valuable. And obviously experience with the species in general, you know the body language the best, you know what they tolerate, what they don't, you know, you get a pretty good idea of the range of normal for the species. Um, so whatever else may be flawed, breeders really know what works and we need to pay attention to that. Uh, same thing for um, snake breeders. Uh, we, a lot of people, including myself in the past, have really come down hard on breeders for the use of the tub and rack uh, housing system. Tubs are not 
optimal in most cases. However, there is a strong argument for the use of these little tubs um, for helping young reptiles survive their first weeks to months of life mm-hmm. um, because they're so young and they're so fragile and you need to make sure that they're eating and developing properly. And if they're in a large enclosure, it's hard to keep track of them. So, mm-hmm. you know, when you've got this animal that's a few weeks old and you're not even sure if it's eating regularly, you need to kind of keep it in this quarantine, these quarantine conditions to keep an eye on it. And that's totally fine because otherwise, you know, you throw these animals into the wild and their survival rate is crazy low. So we have to figure out, okay, what are the things that affect their survival just from a genetic standpoint? Like these guys are just never going to survive. And what are, how can we eliminate the factors um, starvation, dehydration, all of those that would normally take out these uh, these young reptiles in the wild and eliminate those to increase survivability to the point um, where they're old enough to go to new homes, go to um, larger enclosures where they can, you know, start living like adult reptiles the way that they are built to do. But we do need to treat them like babies for a little bit. And breeders are very good at ensuring baby survivability. Mm-hmm. Okay. That said, um, that's my note about don't ignore breeders. Um, Folklore husbandry, yeah. The anti-science movement, it's really interesting. You have people who, it's good to think outside of the box. It really is. Because if we don't think outside of the box, uh, like we were talking about before we started recording right with the um, blackout curtains, you know, innovation is huge in what we do as reptile keepers. We're trying to figure out how to keep these animals in our homes in the way that is most comfortable for them while, you know, coexisting with humans. Um, And those limitations spark creativity. We want people to be thinking about, well, what if this, what if that? Let's question the preconceived notions of what is right. What, where we go wrong in that is when we make an argument without scientific foundations to support it. Um, Recently, I had a conversation with somebody who um, was insisting that uh, dietary variety was not important for snakes. Um, And that, in fact, it was unnatural to provide dietary variety. Um, There are many papers on snakes (laughs) that document that they have a varied diet in the wild. This is not to ignore the specialists. I mean, you have certain species of garter snakes, um, certain other species, uh, garter snakes are just the first to come to mind, you know, that are earthworm specialists, slug specialists, snail specialists, where their bodies are specifically built to tackle these kinds of prey items. You have fish specialists, but even... Uh, fish, you know, under that category, there's lots of different species of fish. Um, if it's a bird specialist, there's still lots of different species of birds. Um, and I, when I was digging up papers to kind of, you know, refute this argument, I found one that was really interesting on an account of a king cobra, which we know they're ophiophages uh, or snake eaters, ate a monitor lizard. So you see how, okay, they're eating what is available they can process these. And I mean, being able to eat what is available is key to survival. Like I said earlier, food doesn't come by that often and being able to successfully capture and consume it 
is even rarer. So mm-hmm. being flexible enough to eat a variety of different prey items is huge for uh, for an animal for an animal survival, for a reptile survival, for a snake's survival. Um, the other part of the argument was um, what was it? Oh, I can't remember. The most important part was diet dietary variety. So that's one thing where you know, science. You have somebody who says this is unnecessary. You can do it if it makes you feel good. Um, but really, you can keep a you can keep a snake on rodents its entire life, and it'll be fine. Um, and there were several points. You know, so aside from the basic science, uh, here we go. Um, there's enrichment value. So snakes respond well to sensory enrichment. Um, and we also don't know if rodents are ideal feeders. We don't even know if the rodents that we're raising in captivity, and it seems to me that um, what I've seen is suggesting that captive raised rodents are less nutritious than wild rodents, uh, parasites aside, which is very interesting. Uh, mm-hmm. We definitely know that the wild animals are, the wild rodents are going to have a better muscle to fat ratio. They have better muscle tone. They're overall healthier in that respect. And so they're going to provide more protein and uh, then fat compared to uh, what we see in captivity, especially with, you know, when you see someone feeding double, triple XL rats, like just get to rabbits. Like those rats are really fat and really old and not very nutritious. Um, So that's where folklore husbandry, um, that's a really good example of folklore husbandry of an example where somebody who is trying to think outside of the box and um, be progressive in uh, enabling um, more realistic reptile keeping, uh, questioning some certain thoughts, start really collides with established science. Mm-hmm. Um, right, because because you'd be hard pressed to find like a scientific study that was suggesting suggesting anywhere that it's not beneficial to provide dietary like you're not going to find a study that's saying it's actually of greater benefit to provide the same feeder ad nauseum like i I can't i'm not aware of a single study that that uh posits that you know but but a lot that suggests that the variety is beneficial now for all the reasons you stated ignore i i believe the word is empirical evidence correct me if i'm wrong Mm -hmm. um where you have accounts of people saying, well, I tried to feed my ball python, you know, I fed it a chick, I fed it a hamster, a gerbil, an African soft fur rat, and all of a sudden it stopped eating its normal diet. It went mm-hmm. on a strike, that's all it wanted to eat. Um, and so you see an issue with the theory of variety is best, right? Because all of a sudden mm-hmm. you see the animal stop eating and that's usually a warning sign. Um, and at first glance, you might think, oh, Offering other feeders is bad. I've also heard this with carpet pythons, um, boas, Mm -hmm. a few others. Um, Well, here's the thing. There's other factors that you need to look at, right? It's not just what's obvious. We have to look at what's under the surface. Okay, maybe the snake prefers the way it smells because they can't taste, but they can smell. Maybe they liked the novelty and they want more of it. Right. So we have to be looking at that. Maybe they were being fed too often in the first place and feeding them something different kind of snapped them out of that, that pattern, that rhythm. Maybe they just need to take a break from eating for a while. Ball pythons naturally fast for 
a big chunk of the year, most of the time. Yeah. And that is healthy for their body condition. Uh, same thing goes for, I mean, to get away from snakes, Savannah monitors. Savannah monitors are not supposed to eat all year long. They go mm-hmm. through summer estivation. They need a period of fasting to maintain good body condition. And mm-hmm. when you're feeding them high fat feeders um, or just hot and very nutrient dense feeders, so mammals and birds um, versus insects or invertebrates, and then on a frequent basis, all year round, that's when we see the obesity that right. has become rampant in that particular species and ball pythons as well. We see a lot of really fat ball pythons. Um, the other thing I feel um, now vets are wonderful. They solve a lot of problems for us. Um, and the, the we could not have a successful um, hobby without our veterinarians. The mistake we make sometimes, though, is when people take their veterinarian's advice for dealing with a sick animal or um, preventing illness in a certain way and extrapolate that to reptile husbandry as a whole. I do see veterinary quarantine practices that leak Mm -hmm. into general husbandry where maybe it shouldn't be doing that. Uh, Mm -hmm. For example, okay. We have, for a very long time, veterinarians have cautioned against the use of loose substrate, i.e. sand, for uh, semi-arid species like bearded dragons and leopard geckos. Interesting. Okay, so first glance you say, yeah, because loose substrate causes impaction because they can't help but ingest it. Okay, but we know now that there are other factors that lead to impaction and it's not always substrate impaction either right we have to be looking at their metabolic health so their temperatures the the uv that they're exposed to we have to be looking at uh, how well hydrated they are we have to be looking at you know are they getting enough calcium to enable um, proper smooth muscle function of the digestive tract so there's a lot of factors in there and even when the animal is healthy quarantine conditions are good temporarily while we establish that the animal is healthy after that we can put them in the environment that where they were evolved to live right i think i phrased that poorly but you know what i mean yeah Um, where they evolved the environment that literally shaped their anatomy and physiology if we ignore that then we could at worst create something really boring um at best or Um, I guess at best, we create something really boring. At worst, we could actually do them harm by not putting them in the environment that they need. Uh, I mean, a great example is to take a fossorial species, put them on paper towels, and all of a sudden they can't burrow to the degree that they want to burrow. Take a species that likes to dig, put them on paper towels. They can't dig. It stresses them out. Put a species that is used to being on... um, on normal soil, grass, et cetera, um, or even, you know, packed soil with like a centimeter of loose sand scattered on top that still provides more cushioning value for their joints than tile is going to. Tile is hard on the joints. I mean, all you have to do is stand barefoot on a concrete floor all day, right? You feel that. totally. And they feel that too. So we have to be careful about, uh, we need to listen to our veterinarians, but we need to be careful that we don't um, conflate quarantine conditions and what we do for a sick reptile and how we treat a healthy reptile. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's so well said. 
Does that answer the folklore husbandry thing? I think it answers it very well. Yeah. Um, Phil, are you with us? Yes. Yes. Yes, indeed. I am here. I got kicked out briefly and I return. Okay. Good. Welcome back. Making sure you're not asleep. Um, No, no. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely not Um, asleep. (laughs) Well, okay. So, with all of this in mind, this kind of conversation around, you know, folklore husbandry, all of that, I'm curious, like, how you would rate just kind of like the baseline level of information, you know, husbandry information within herpetoculture. Like, how are we doing? Like, state of the union. <laughs> I feel like I'm slightly biased on that because yeah, of course. I have left a lot of the poorer quality circles. Um, mm-hmm. And so I'm a little out of touch. Uh, with how bad things can be within herpetoculture. Sometimes I I have somebody will ask me a question because they saw a source somewhere, or um, I'll just randomly run across uh, something on my social media feed or Reddit or whatever. I promise I don't skim Reddit. I just occasionally see stuff that pops up. <laughs> um, <laughs> like to avoid. You don't Reddit have to worry about you too much, <laughs> right? Um, and and it surprises me that there are still really poor practices that are common enough in herpetoculture uh, to be spouted, to be creating questions in the minds of new keepers, um, to be causing poor setups in the first place. I think looking at pet stores is probably our, our best way to create the to get an idea of what our baseline starting point in herpetoculture is. Uh, it is getting better. We're seeing enclosure sizes getting larger. We're seeing better products become available, but there are still colored night bulbs being sold. There are still um, heat rocks being sold. There are still um, these awful, awful kits that just promote the absolute minimum, create this fairly unenriched environment where, I mean, people don't even know what temperatures and even the the little care guides that come on certain species from a product manufacturers can be way off in terms of mm. uh, what the animal needs. I mean, you have some people manufacturing UVB bulbs that aren't even rated according to their UVI output. Um, we're still looking at uh, what is it nanometers per square inch or something like that, um, which is totally not helpful anymore. It used to be the standard. Now it's not. And that hasn't evolved. Yeah. So we're still seeing these outdated products being pushed, these really poor quality kits being pushed. And um, because there's still this ideology that reptiles are cheap pets. One of my best comparisons for this is let's look at the fish hobby, specifically saltwater fish. Okay. We don't see a lot of minimalism with saltwater aquariums because the whole idea with a saltwater aquarium is this beautiful the miniature coral reef, right? They are not just fish. They are pieces of art in your own home. It's a decor, it's part of your interior decor. And so they have these really enriched environments. And because they're such a pain to maintain, the equipment that maintains these enclosures is really good. You even have services that you can hire to maintain your tank for you, where they like come every week and check on your pH balance and maintain your filter and whatever else. 
That's so cool. I wish we had that for reptiles. Even in amphibians, the dart frog hobby, a lot of what we have for bioactive in particular with reptiles came from the dart frog hobby. You don't see minimalistic dart frog vivariums very often. You see, again, works of art, highly enriched, beautiful. The humidity is maintained well. Temperatures are maintained well. The animals are generally thriving, right? That's the direction I want to see the reptile hobby go to. And there is not a stigma. You don't, you know, want to get into a saltwater aquarium on the cheap. You, well, people try and then they realize they can't. Um, yeah. Same thing goes for like the dart frog hobby. It, the idea is not to get in it as cheap as possible. It is to do it right. And we're not there yet with reptiles. It's still, oh, reptiles are cheap, throw away pets. If, you know, this $25 lizard or less dies, that's no problem. I can just get another one because that's easier than proper husbandry for this creature. Mm -hmm. And it's maddening to see this. The misinformation, the the perceptions um, that or the misconceptions surrounding reptiles in the first place. I mean, you still have people who are like, oh, snakes are evil because they tempted Eve in the Garden of Eden, and therefore, you know, they deserve to die. And these animals, like, sure, they might be an interesting pet, but, like, you don't treat them well. They're just minimalism. It's like a beta fish in a bowl that you win at a carnival. Mm-hmm. That kind of thing we need to get over as, um, as I think, a society even. Mm-hmm. Uh, we need to get away from that mentality toward reptiles before we can change herpticulture because there are experienced keepers more now than ever, thanks to social media, who are saying, hey, these things are no longer good practice. We have the internet where people can go and they hopefully will eventually bump into a voice who will guide them in uh, in a better direction. And there's more and more of those experienced, high-quality voices every year that are speaking for higher-quality husbandry. When I started Reptophiles, how many years ago? Uh, six, seven, eight. Um, one of the reasons I did was because I wasn't seeing enough of those voices out there. Part of the yeah. reason was I was in the wrong circles, but also a lot has changed in that time. And now there are so many other people who I feel supported by in my arguments and it, um, and in my effort because it's just proliferating where these um, the movement for better husbandry is getting louder and louder and bigger and bigger. And that's fantastic. But if we don't change how reptiles are perceived as pets, we are never going to be able to get to the same place where we see dart frogs and saltwater aquariums. And one thing we need to do is we need to see high quality zoos providing better care for the reptiles. You see high quality zoos and their mammal and bird exhibits are phenomenal. If they have fish, fish are very well cared for. The reptiles though, barely have the right lighting, barely have the right substrate. They're totally cramps. And it's like, why? Mm -hmm. Because you just put the animal on display and you're like, oh, well, it looks cool. So we don't need to give it a proper environment or anything. That's one of the things I would like to do is get into reptile husbandry consulting for zoos to help improve that. Because zoos are where people go 
to see exotics and then they see a reptile and they're like, wow, that's a cool animal. And then they find out that you can get that animal and keep it as a pet. And they're like, whoa, I can do that. Let's go. And they use what they saw at the zoo as their benchmark, their initial impression. Um, Same Mm -hmm. thing for, you know, making sure that we as keepers are doing our best being, you know, not hiding our pets in basements, you know, (laughs) let's, improve the way that people perceive us as reptile keepers and what we do so instead of we can combat the stereotype of lizards being cheap pets for kids you know first pets are like yeah well if it dies it dies it's you know a good experience for the kid to learn how to care something care for something right generally speaking pets like kids shouldn't have pets (laughs) um without close supervision speaking from experience i have a lot of uh tragedies in my past (laughs) um they got me where i am today but i have regrets and that's one of the reasons why i do now is my form of penance right um the we need to change you know the the idea that reptiles are kids pets they're that they're starter pets we need to change that perception that you know it's it's a snake in a box in a closet in the basement under your bed that there's something to hide from your landlord um we need to be public with our animals and we need to therefore have enclosures that we are comfortable making public right Mm -hmm. so share our pictures of our enclosures on social media talk about our pets how much we love them how much we find them interesting and fascinating and share just that these are normal pets to have that they are amazing animals and just start to generate a wave of positivity to create a better baseline for new keepers to start with. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very well said. Couldn't agree, couldn't agree more with that. Um, so, okay, with this with this kind of as the backdrop, uh, my next question for you is, uh, you know, what does the future look like for you and for you know, sort of as reptifiles? And then, sort of a piggyback question on that is, um, oh, excuse me, hang on. Oh. Oh man, I was just, oh my God. <laughs> oh man, that was awesome. I, I thought that sneeze disappeared for a second. Anyway, so oh, yeah. what does the future look like for, for you and, and Reptifiles? And then sort of a piggyback question to that is, what do you think herp- herpetoculture might look like in 50 to 100 years? Mm. Wow. Okay. Will the world even still be standing in a hundred years? Anyway, um, yeah. <laughs> just gonna aside. Uh, so, starting with reptophiles, right now I am aggressively expanding my cure sheet database. Uh, I init- I used to s- want to avoid cure sheets because um, it's it, a few pages of information is just not enough to mm. properly care for an animal in most cases. Um, however, I came to a realization a couple of years ago that care sheets are valuable, one, because it is a more digestible form of information that a lot of people are likely to gravitate toward instead of a whole book's worth of care manual, right? Um, especially in this age where reading is not as enjoyed. Uh, you want to make that information accessible. and two. I wanted to make Reptophiles quality information 
available for a greater diversity of species. And the only way I could sustainably do that was by getting into care sheets. So uh, I will return to the um, the in-depth care manuals, but they do take me a long time to do because of the uh, level of research that is required to uh, to do that. So and especially because I'm not, I don't quite have the time. Like if I was working eight hours a day on reptophiles, um, maybe that could change right now. That's not the case. So, um, it's a future thing. Not right now. Right now is just building out the, the database so that I can reach as many keepers as possible, um, out of the gate, um, on as many different species as possible. Uh, and yes, that does mean that the information is not quite as well researched as I'd like it to be. It's a, more on the surface level, but I'm still doing my best to um, to find quality sources. And I trip up here and there, but I'm doing my best uh, to create a picture, a basic picture, a very quick picture of what husbandry needs to look for the, look like for these animals. And these care sheets have also proven to be very useful resources for breeders, for veterinarians. Um, I have a lot of people getting in touch with me asking, you know, if they can use these um, rep, uh, people who go to the expo, breeders, educators, um, even reptile expo organizers using my care sheets, which is absolutely phenomenal. And that's kind of confirmation for me that this is what I need to be doing in this season of Reptophiles. Um, I'm also working on just uh, improving the site itself. So the site is going to get a little bit of a um, rebuild to help it run mm -hmm. faster and hopefully rank better on Google so that it's more easy to find and that it's uh, easier to navigate because it's kind of huge and a mess right now. Um, mm -hmm. Also working on marketing. So uh, going to streamline that a little bit. Um, obviously, social media is a big push for me right now. I'm making my educational videos. I'm trying to post more often and more educational content rather than just cute reptile pictures. Um, let's see, other goals. Uh, I'm working with Happy Dragons. Um, they are essentially my partner now. And so uh, some very exciting stuff is coming where it's still in development, uh, but we've mm -hmm. uh, got a uh, a, rep a highly curated reptile marketplace uh, being built. Um, we're looking into um, some interesting uh, enclosure options. I don't want to say too much uh, until it is more available. There's a lot of really cool things that have been in development for the last two years that I've been working with them. And uh, there's a reason why I've agreed to partner with them and work with them. Um, it's going to be fantastic. And this is going to be um, pretty influential in the future of Reptophiles. Um, I'm also hoping to uh, attend more reptile expos in the future. If I can work it with um, balancing family and uh, mm -hmm. traveling that often, I love working face-to-face -face with people. That's one of the reasons why I've kind of avoided doing YouTube is because talking to a screen or a lens does not fulfill me. It just drains me completely. I can do it if I have to, but I'd really rather just be talking to people one-on-one -on -one face-to-face. Um, Zoom is the least I will tolerate. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, I want to be 
interacting with people, going back and forth, that minimizes the chances of miscommunication and is just more energizing for me. And it's more fun to see the light bulb go off in their head in real time. So yeah, that's what I'm looking uh, forward to. I think for the next five years of Reptophiles is going to look like that. And of course, finishing my master's degree at West Liberty University. I don't think I'll go straight to PhD. Um, I'll have to wait until I don't have young children in the house. Uh, to um, to go for that, but I'm ve- I'm very much looking forward to finishing my master's and um, having that in my pocket. Amazing. As for the future of herpticulture, gosh, um, fifty years. I really hope that by fi- by the time fifty years have passed, um, that we have reptiles being perceived as. Um, properly as exotic pets, that um, we have larger enclosures where um, we have people who are like, I have one bearded dragon, that is it, and it has a bedroom in my house. That would be awesome. Like, whoop, got a little too enthusiastic there. Um, (laughs) It would be so awesome to just see people spoil the crap of their animals, like single pet households, putting everything they have into a reptile as the family pet as much as a cat or a dog or a horse, um, a well-kept cat, dog, or horse. Seeing people um, is getting rid of that conception of, of snakes being um, something that you only keep in your basement or something that, you know, uh, dude bros with something to prove have. Um Personally, I would like to see, this is not a popular opinion, but I would like to see certain species phased out of the pet trade, um, or at least much rarer. Uh, For example, giant pythons. I think anything bigger than maybe about 12 feet probably should not be in the pet trade, um, or at least not easily accessed. Um, Kind of on the level of like crocodilians, but better because, you know, you still have people getting baby alligators at like fairs and uh, random places, especially down South, like yikes. Um, But more on that level of, okay, you have to know what you're doing for that animal. Not, Oh, I want a Burmese Python. Let's go get a Burmese Python. And then, you know, Oh, I can keep it under my bed. Great. No. (laughs) People don't know what they're getting into with these animals. Um, And you don't see it with large monitors either. uh, Even though, well, we do. Uh, they just don't usually survive because they're harder to care for. And that's the sad mm-hmm. reality, right? You do yeah. see a lot of people buying large monitors, but they don't survive to adulthood. Um, Nile monitors, water monitors, um, even Savannah monitors, uh, anything f- four feet or longer. Um, monitor lizards in general need to be sold less. As babies, I want to see savanna monitors completely gone. Just all baby monitors, except for like the dwarves, gone from pet stores and from expos. Mm-hmm. Um, you need to be working with the breeder. You need to know exactly what you're doing. You need to have that outdoor enclosure or bedroom ready to go. Um, and for some reason, you don't see that as much with tegus. People seem to know mm-hmm. more of what they're getting into with tegus. I think that might have something to do with mm-hmm. the influencers um, around right now. But generally speaking, when someone gets a tegu, they have a better idea of what they're getting into. Not always, but they do seem to be um, better as far as large lizards go. Uh, Same for sulcatas. Let's get sulcatas. Oh, my gosh. Um, 
oh, what are they called? Um, Aldabra tortoises. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, yeah, all the giants need to be, I don't want to say regulated because that's a trigger word for some people, but there need to be certain restrictions. Mm-hmm. Um, a higher barrier to entry. For, yeah, a higher barrier to entry. Not in a gatekeeping kind of way, but in just a more concern for the well-being of the animals involved yeah. kind of way. Um, let's see. I want to say enclosures better, culture better. Um, I'm guessing that smart enclosures are the future. So enclosures that actually like have integrated life support equipment and will communicate with your phone or whatever device we're using in 50 years, probably some implant. Um, <laughs> oh no. That will, you know, automatically man, you know, you program it to maintain certain humidity levels at certain times of day, certain light levels light like light cycles and um air quality levels and temperature gradients and all of that totally automatically managed like maybe this is a little jetson of me but i think you know given enough time in the way that technology progresses that a self-managing enclosure is the next step um in mm-hmm. reptile housing and that would be really cool to uh that making it easier to manage is going to be so good for improving husbandry, right? Because one of the reasons uh, people kind of shy away from better husbandry is like, okay, if it's more enriched, then I have to, there's more to clean and it's harder to replace the substrate. And if it's bigger enclosure, that's harder to maintain. I mean, all of those things, right? So, Mm -hmm. um, Heck, maybe even a self-cleaning enclosure somehow. Like maybe you like can take out the reptile at certain times and then it switches on a UVC light and and fries everything. Um, (laughs) That wouldn't really work for bioactive, um, but maybe we'd have uh, better ways to test soil health and make sure that, you know, test soil like aquarists test uh, their water Mm -hmm. and have ways to, you know, mix in some water else, whatever else to rebalance the soil and keep it healthy. Yeah. Okay, yeah, I think those are my pipe dreams for the uh, for her her pediculture. I'd like to see people treating each other better, uh, less elita, elitism in the hobby. But I honestly think that one might be the most unrealistic of them all. Yeah, that seems to be a persistent thing just in the world. Yeah, <laughs> wherever you're going to have groups of people, you're going to have people who think they're better than everyone else. Um, people who take offense easily and start yelling about it, and. Mm-hmm. Uh, people who don't want to listen, period. So Mm -hmm. that's just humanity. Um, But as long as, you know, we can structure things, maybe we can make it a little bit more bomb-proof in that sense. Um, Yeah. Reduce the margin of error. But yeah, I I don't think people are going to change. People, I mean, you see uh, (laughs) remains from cave drawings, from Pompeii, you know, everything else. It's very obvious. Humans haven't changed and they probably won't. (laughs) That's very real. Yeah, that's very real. Well, um, I feel like we've taken a lot of your time already. And so I feel inclined to move toward like our closing question. I don't know if you've heard our show before, but we always ask the same, the same closer question. Um, and that's just, just why herpetoculture, you know, and that could be why, why does it matter? Um, why do you do it? Why herpetoculture? 
because reptiles are cool, man. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. So many different kinds of reptiles and they're so interesting and they're so variable in their adaptations and there's always something more to learn and they look cool. Like there's Mm. definitely a certain, like, I almost want to say ego boost and be like, yeah, I've got a snake. He's pretty cool. I mean, yeah, I've got a boa. How big is he? Four feet. Um, yeah, that's his adult length. I know boas <laughs> aren't usually that small. It doesn't sound as cool once we get into the details, but I've got a boa. <laughs> um, so as much as, you know, you don't want them to be uh, status symbols, it is cool to have a unique animal uh, in your care and to be able to interact with them. And also it's a piece of nature, right? Uh, one of the reasons I love being surrounded by reptile enclosures, I have a bunch of tropical enclosures in my bedroom, um, is because the lights turn on first thing in the morning. And what do I get to wake up to? Green. Mm-hmm. It's like being outside, kind of. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's better for my mental health, I feel, especially in winter. Like I'm really just feeling, ugh. I go into my reptile room. It's warm. It's a little bit more humid in there. and. I can just like lay down on the floor and soak in all, all of the artificial sunlight and green and everything else. And it's just a much healthier environment for me. And to be surrounded by animals, you know, um, this there's this book I'm reading. Uh, it's called The Emotional Lives of Animals by Mark mm-hmm. Bikoff. I just posted a quote by um, from that book to my Instagram. And it was actually part of, I believe it was part of my required readings um, or a piece of it, a chapter of it was part of my required readings in my um, animal behavior and welfare class. And it was talking about how people need animals. Mm-hmm. We we don't do well when it's just us, when we are isolated from nature. Studies have shown that we are mentally more healthy when we are exposed to sunlight, when we hear nature sounds, all of these things. And, you know, I saw it somewhere else. If Heck, it may have been a Tumblr post for all I know. But somebody pointed out that a lot of the, um, the mental health issues that face humans today look a lot like stereotypy in unhealthy zoo animals. Yeah. And so anxiety, depression... Um, chronic pain, all of these things are looking a lot like the problems that we're working to solve in captive animals in zoos. Um, the problems that we see and struggle to solve, especially for the more complex ones, you know, like our large carnivores. And that's fascinating to me. Um, so if we rethink human health uh, or mental health issues as stereotypy, that gives us a new avenue into maybe finding solutions. And I'm not a psychologist. I'm not very well versed in human mental health in general, but I think, you know, at the end of the day, we are animals and having contact with animals, caring for animals gives us a lot of insight into how we can better take care of ourselves too. Mm, Beautifully said. Yeah. I like that. Full agreement with that. Yeah. Excellent. Excellent. Good stuff. Cool. Well, um, I guess where can folks find you, Mariah? I mean, I guess it's kind of obvious. We got reptophiles.com, yeah. reptophiles on Instagram, Facebook. Is that mm. the best place? Yeah. Uh, I do post my videos on TikTok um, for 
for people to find. I don't engage on TikTok though, because it's a hellhole. So um, <laughs> if you want to talk to me, uh, do so on YouTube or Instagram or Facebook or uh, send me an email at mariah at reptophiles.com. Um, because yeah, I'm off TikTok. Notifications are off. I upload pic- videos and run. <laughs> All right. I totally understand that. Cool. Well, I'll have um I'll have links to all that in the show notes, of course. And um Thanks. I just really want to thank you for your time. This has been like such a rich and nuanced conversation. Just really appreciate what you're what you're bringing to herpetoculture and what you brought to this conversation. So thank you for that. Thank you so much for inviting me. This has been a blast. Yeah, ditto. Yeah. Ditto that. All of it. Thank you so much, Mariah. Awesome. All right, I'm well, gonna hit the button. All right. <laughs> <laughs>